Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly royal roundup brought to you from Mail Plus. I'm Jo Elvin and we have so much to talk about this week from the Queen to the latest on Prince Andrew. But first, we're going to kick things off by looking at a new interview given by the one and only Meghan Markle. Here to discuss that and more is royal writer Victoria Murphy and the Daily Mail's diary editor Richard Eden. Good afternoon to you both. Thanks for being here. Now, the evening that we record this, an interview with the Duchess of Sussex will air on the Ellen DeGeneres show in America. We've seen some early clips and sound bites, but Richard, the palace, I imagine, will be braced for a few more revelations here. I'm sure they will. And it's not surprising after the Oprah Winfrey interview, which obviously made, you know, explosions all around the world and caused just a long, long headache for the royal family. Mm. So I think there will be a real sense of trepidation. Um, from the clips we've seen so far, though, it does seem to be more of a light-hearted showbiz interview in the style of Prince Harry's interview with James Corden. So I'm not sure that it will be so revelatory. Something about Meghan's battered old car that she used to go to auditions in. What I saw, Victoria, these kind of shows, it just seems such the the regulation circuit for American celebrities. So do you think that this is the kind of thing that we might see Meghan on more regularly? I think potentially. I mean, I think this particular interview, clearly Meghan knows Ellen. We think that they are friends even. So that's come about for that reason. Um, but I think we are starting to see a bit more now the kinds of things that they want to do. They've been quite visible recently and they've been taking part in these kind of long-form discussions, these panels, these quite lengthy interviews like the one that Meghan did the other week with Dealbook. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of interest in what they say and they have these profiles still. But I think a lot of these appearances as well are kind of a reminder of the very different nature of the platforms that they now have to the ones that they had when they were working royals, because there's no kind of automatic position for them at the centre of things that there is for the working royals. And if they want to be visible, if they want to be part of the conversation on the big issues, then they need to do that themselves and they need to make plans to be seen and to be heard. And that's what these appearances do for them. I mean, what I find so intriguing is why are they not using their own platforms? Because, you know, they launched the Spotify deal with great fanfare. And I think we had maybe one programme, but we didn't hear any more about that. This is quite a long time ago. Does anyone have any idea why she chose Ellen? I saw you mischievously tweeting mm. yesterday, Richard, what do Megan and Ellen have in common? And of course, it's the, the rumours about bullying. Well, this is a big series for Ellen because it's mm. her final <laughs> series. She, she's apologised um, over the claims about her production team in the past. There were bullying and other unpleasant allegations. I think Ellen said that's not linked to why it's her final season. But I think of she wants not. to... Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> she wants to end with a bang. And clearly, yeah. Megan's there to help out and... Um, yeah, you know, provide I'm, that royal luster. I think I think Megan is very conscious about how she comes across, and I think she's very conscientious about how, the, how she presents herself, and certainly would choose things. I think you know she knows Ellen, and she's clearly comfortable that she feels that she can sit down and be seen how she wants to be seen, and I think that's clearly a part of it as well. Isn't it so different though? When the royals give interviews, it's always about 
promoting a good cause or drawing attention to something, well, whereas here it's all a, seems to be just about promoting it's, Megan. It's just about Megan and how down to earth she is. It's sort of like her humble beginnings as a, a lowly actress trying to get auditions. Um, you know, do you, is that what we're sort of like going to be seeing more of? Well, I thought the, the clips were intriguing. There was definite reference to how she came from quite humble origins with this old banger of a car and stuff. It was a slightly odd sort of far-fetched anecdote. But, um, <laughs> You're so cynical. But it, it did seem like a... <laughs> I believed it. It did seem like a real return to showbiz, I felt, talking about how she'd auditioned for things and very much about her and her story. Um, I do think it ties in with the political stuff that we've talked about really? before. That she's, she's telling that backstory about how she's worked her way up. You know, she's not just the, the grand princess. I think when you're a royal, you know, we don't have those stories to tell. But she clearly likes, she just seemed to me so much more at ease in this yeah. interview. I mean, I think she, they now do have more freedom to, to speak about what they want to do, what they want. And I think she... I think if she was talking, if she was a working role, she would still have been able to do some of this stuff and she would have been able to tell these stories and there would have been the same amount of interest in the same way. Um, but I certainly think that, I think that you can tell that she feels sort of more in control now and, and more relaxed. And certainly the clip that we've seen, she does look very in her element mm. in that clip. And, and in news elsewhere this week that won't surprise anybody, Harry and Meghan not gracing our shores for Christmas. Do you think that that's, did that shock you at all, Victoria? No, and I thought another thing that was interesting about it was, I mean, it's not been confirmed or announced or anything, but this suggestion was put out there that they weren't going to come back to the UK for Christmas. And I don't think it really gained necessarily even a lot of traction because it do, it's not really surprising. It doesn't really change the narrative in any way on anything. And, you know, a few years ago, if they weren't coming back for Christmas, people would have read into that. As, but we know how big this feud has been and we know how significant the rift is and also because of COVID as well. I mean, it just isn't surprising, is it really, that they're not coming back? And I think that's the thing now. We've had so much information put into the public domain that the, the sort of minutiae of are they doing this, are they doing that, it, it doesn't really add anything to the story anymore, really. Well, I sort of disagree a bit because they, I mean, let's, you know, let's appreciate how important this is. I mean, the members of the royal family have still not met baby Lilibet. And, you know, normally you'd have a christening for a member of the royal family. It would always take place within three months. That hasn't happened yet. I remember Harry apparently made it clear that he wanted to have a royal christening. So it does make you think that there's been some pushback on that and there's been no appetite among the royal family for organising a royal christening well, here. That's interesting because that leads me on to, I wanted to look at the picture that ran in the mail on Sunday last weekend that shows two photos of the royal box, one from this year and one from... 2019 at the annual British Legion Festival of Remembrance. And mm. I mean, the difference in the size, the, the amount of people in that box is dramatically different, dramatically smaller this year. There's no Queen, there's no Duke of York, of course, there's the, the no Sussexes. It's quite a dramatic change, isn't it? I thought these two pictures really did speak volumes. Um, I mean, obviously, at the heart of it was the, the absence of the Queen. She will have been very sad not to pretend it. I, I watched on television a beautiful um, festival and something that's really important to her. Mm. And then no Harry and Meghan, obviously, and then no Andrew. And it's real sort of depleted. Where are our producers? We need to review this, <laughs> our balcony shot from Palace Confidential. I mean, when are we going to have that? Hopefully for the um, Platinum Jubilee celebrations, they will be on the balcony, but obviously there'll be some notable absentees. I suspect Prince Andrew still hopes to be there, but oh dear. We'll Wait, see. So Speaking of Prince Andrew, Victoria, um, he's been the subject of 
more revelations this week. Oh, my goodness. I know. This is about his financial setup. So this is a story that Bloomberg broke this week where they had, they say, um, seen documentation that showed that Prince Andrew borrowed £1.5 And this was in 2017. He received funds to um, earmark to pay that back from David Rowland, a Conservative Party donor um, and someone that he has known for a long time. Um, and the, the money that Andrew borrowed was borrowed from a bank that is run by David Rowland's family. Um, David Rowland has also in the past been, um, it's been said that he paid off some of Fergie's debts. That's what's been reported. And so clearly raising a lot of questions there about Andrew's financial setup, how he has funded his lifestyle, because we know that he's had you know, a lavish lifestyle over the years. Is and- the technical term, it's a bit icky. Yeah. Just a bit. (laughs) To say something (laughs) positive from this was Prince Andrew has always been very keen to help the Duchess of York. That I think she accepted a very small divorce settlement. It was much smaller than Princess Diana secured. And I think the in return, the expectation was that he would always sort of look after her financially. And I think he's tried to do that, but it has led him into the um, path of very dubious figures such as Jeffrey Epstein, who, mm, yeah. who paid off some debts of Fergie's in the past. I mean, it is important because he, well, he was when he was working for it, a public figure. He's still part of the royal family. His mother's head of state. And, you know, we don't get information about financial setup of the royals behind closed doors. We get what they get from the public funds, the sovereign grant, but we don't get other details. And actually, when this kind of thing comes out, when it's uncovered, it sheds light on things that it's important to discuss. But Equally, I think with Prince Andrew at the moment, it is a controversy, this. But everything just, just fades I, into the background. I mean, when of, I read this this morning, yeah. I was thinking, can the man have an uncomplicated cup of tea? Well, <laughs> can I, this happen? I mean, this is very, I think, small in as a controversy in comparison to what is going on with Virginia Roberts and the huge reputational damage that is going on with him and the royal family and, as and a of, result of those allegations. And of course, <laughs> Prince Andrew has uh, denied any impropriety. And in fact, a spokesman for Andrew said, in accounting terms, it was all duly logged and taxes paid and everything went across the books in the proper way. So Richard Harry has obviously come in for plenty of criticism over his commercial deals, not least of all from you on this programme, but he could argue that at least that's all out in the open and it's all on the record. Yes, I mean, there is an element of truth in that in the sense that Harry's financial deals, as far as we know, are all publicly available, sort of, you know, he signs a deal with this person, with this person. Whereas with Prince Andrew, it, it, it is murky. You know, he was carrying out a role for the British state as an um, international trade envoy. And then at the same time, he was um, having his debts paid off by a businessman. Yeah, so that's, that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, worrying. Harry and Meghan have stepped back and they've, they've done this private financial setup since they stopped having any formal roles representing Britain on the world stage or meeting people on behalf of the royal family. And the accusation is that Andrew was a working royal when these funds were transferring. Mm. Now, we're not done with the Yorks yet. Princess Beatrice, who she's the vice president of, let me get this right, Strategy and Partnerships at Affinity, whose boss is facing accusations of sexual assault. Now, the former Prime Minister David Cameron has just stepped down from the board of Affinity. It it seems like she will have to as well. Poor Beatrice. My goodness. You know, if it wasn't enough dealing with all the scandals associated with her father... Um, she has this one. There seems to be absolutely nothing to do with her. It's, you know, the boss of the company she just happens to work for. Um, so, I mean, what does she do? I think, um, you know, admirably, both her and her sister have um, got jobs in the private sector. You know, her sister, Princess Eugenie, works for a, 
um, an art gallery, and they both try to do what I think um, there's always been calls for the more junior royals to do, go out and get jobs. So I definitely wouldn't be harsh on her in any way. It's nothing to do with her. Um, but obviously, it's it's a bit embarrassing. So she could probably get another job, right? That's uh, what hopefully I was going to say. Job. Yeah, I mean, now this has been highlighted <laughs> yeah. and her name has been brought up yeah. in the context, it's going to be you know quite difficult to see it, particularly if Cameron step back, how she doesn't go on to do the same. Well, but we can make an appeal I now on this program. I think she'll probably be okay. I think she'll probably get another job. Someone just... give Beatrice a, a, a good job. It would um, be better Piers for Morgan's her. Piers Morgan's hiring at the moment. <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, now I should point out that Zia Gisti, the boss of Affinity, strongly disputes all accusations against him and said his accusers' claims are erroneous. Let's move on. Despite great hopes that she would be at the Cenotaph for Remembrance Sunday, the Queen was forced to pull out of the event with a reported sprained back. This week she has resumed light duties but will likely be less visible between now and Christmas. Robert Hardman is a Daily Mail columnist and a biographer of Her Majesty and he gave us his thoughts. I think no one was uh, more disappointed about the Queen's absence from the Cenotaph than the Queen herself. I mean, she had very genuinely made every effort to be there. We were told for days in advance it was her, quotes, firm intention to be there. And it was a rather unsettling moment, I have to say, on Sunday morning at 9.18 as our phones pinged and there was a statement from Buckingham Palace saying that uh, she's very disappointed that she sprained her back and with deep regret will not be coming. And obviously that sort of rippled through the crowd and, and you know, this is 10,000 veterans there, all of whom have sworn allegiance to either the Queen or her father. They were genuinely concerned. It was a sort of, it was an alarming moment. But actually, um, since then, I've spoken to people at the palace and uh, around the Queen, and everyone's concerned, but there's no cause for great anxiety at the moment. Uh, this was something that was uh, unexpected. It's not related to her recent trip to hospital. It was simply a very painful back. And to go to the Cenotaph would have involved a 50-mile round trip in a car. Um, even if you're the Queen, even if it's a state Bentley, it's still a 50-mile round trip in a car. It would have involved standing up in the open air for around half an hour, um, which is, you know, trying. I mean, she's used to that. But when you've got all the cameras on you, everybody focusing on you, and you're 95, and your back's really hurting, it's not a really very satisfactory place to be. So I, I understand why. The decision was taken. It was uh, one of those precautions. I think what we're all having to do now is gradually uh, come to terms with the fact that we have got the oldest head of state in the world, that she is in her 10th decade. I think because she's just been so dependable all these years that we've just come to take her for granted. I mean, perhaps the surprising thing really is not that she didn't make it to the Cenotaph um, this year, but that she's been making it to the Cenotaph for year after year after year, ever since 1945. Nobody alive has been to the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday more times than the Queen. I mean, it's 76 years since she laid her first wreath there. There aren't any more big events, in, or indeed any events, publicly announced in the diary between now and Christmas, so uh, I have every confidence we will be seeing her on our screens at 3pm on Christmas Day. Probably the next thing to look out for actually will be, will be Christmas morning itself. Will she go to church at Sandringham or will she prefer to um, attend a private service uh, up at the house rather than make the journey and, and go up the steps into church? We'll just have to wait and see. But I'm told she's in very good spirits and we will see her carrying on with what they call her light duties. That's her 
audiences with ambassadors uh, over video, talking to the Prime Minister on a weekly basis. She still does that. And the one thing that she can't shake off, whatever happens, is her red boxes. They still turn up every night. She still goes through them all and they still return the following morning. So uh, until they stop, um, it's business as usual. Robert Hardman there. Let's bring our panel back in now. Victoria, it really is starting to feel, isn't it, like the last couple of weeks we, we've moved into a real watershed moment where we're just not going to see the Queen as much anymore. Is that fair, do you think? I think it has felt different to how things have been previously. And I think some of that is because over the last few years, you know, she has been scaling back. She doesn't do any overseas travel. She doesn't wear the imperial state crown at the state opening of Parliament. Charles has laid the wreath at the Cenotaph for a few years. So we've had a lot of gradual changes, but they've all felt very gradual and they've all been done in a very controlled way, kind of managing this transition very slowly. But what we had a few weeks ago was her coming out and being incredibly busy, incredibly visible of her own violation. I mean, you know, it's important to say that she, no one is asking anything of her that she doesn't want to do or that she isn't asking of herself. Um, and then that had to be completely very quickly rolled back on. And suddenly everything was off the, off the table again. All, all the engagements weren't possible. But, and, but, then and so suddenly Senator, on Remembrance Sunday. Yes, exactly. And that, that's significant because they had teed up her being there. It's the one thing that you know, it's, it's considered so important in her diary. And so that it, it's felt a lot more jarring than it ever has done previously. And it is a bit disconcerting, this sort of process of, um, you know, the family stepping in. We had Prince Edward um, stepped in for the first time in her entire reign when she didn't address the General Synod of the Church of England. And that was, interestingly, her role was taken um, by the Earl of Wessex, who read out a speech on her behalf. Um, and we'll see more and more of that, I'm sure. Mm. But it, it does... I Personally, uh, I'm uncomfortable with this. I've said in this programme before, I would much prefer us to say to the Queen, you know, we are so grateful for your life of service. Please retire and But do you not think that easy. perhaps people have tried to broach that? And she's just so, you know, it's, it's duty is through her like a, you know, a stick of rock. And Possibly, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, but as you say, I think... Um, if the Queen's determined to carry on, then we don't want to force her to do anything different. But Victoria, do you think this adds another layer of tension to Platinum Jubilee plans and celebrations? Yeah, I mean, certainly the Platinum Jubilee plans have been in the works for some time now, and that is absolutely ongoing. I think there's probably a feeling that that is a moment that it's very important for her to be visible at, very important for her to be to be there at. Um but, you know, I remember in 2012 when it was her Diamond Jubilee, there was a sort of unspoken, obviously, sense, could this be the last major jubilee? And here we are 10 years on and, you know, there's another one. Mm. I think that it's interesting what we've seen her in these speeches recently sort of reminding us about no one being immune to the ageing process, these little lines that are dropped mm. in that are very easy to read into. And then Charles being asked recently as well about it. And he said, so basically, what's the effect of... It's, it's she's 95 it's just not possible and I feel like that kind of gives us a very strong sense of the direction now that there is this wide acknowledgement of the fact she cannot be as visible or as busy I mean the cheeky question is I saw Piers Morgan on Instagram the other day saying he's feels less and less confident in the in the party line that it was a sprained back do you think that there is things that they're not telling us they're balancing this issue of her being very elderly and being entitled to medical privacy with her yeah. being head of state and when the public does need to know. I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, 
they're not going to release all the information. So there is, there's probably lots of details that we're not aware of. But mm. when it comes to the stuff that they do put out proactively, I don't think there's any reason to be questioning the accuracy of that. But I think it's just what else is going on that we're perhaps not fully getting and, and should we be getting? You know? but I, I, I do think that whatever um, happens and whatever part the Queen can play in the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, they will be a great party. We'll be having our street parties across the country. There yeah. he is, our royalist extraordinaire. <laughs> Let's move on. Now, you might have noticed that we haven't spoken to the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, this week. There's a very good reason for that. That's because she's been on tour with her very best pals in the world, Prince Charles and the Duchess of Cornwall in the Middle East, where she recorded this video diary. Hello from a man in Jordan. The reason why I'm here is in just a few hours, the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall will be embarking on a whirlwind four day visit to the Middle East. After Jordan, they'll be heading to Egypt where they'll visit Cairo and Alexandria. Now I've just been looking through my confidential schedule for the week and I've calculated that between them, they will undertake more than 30 public engagements, which is a pretty punishing schedule for a couple in their seventies. And the reason why is the Prince of Wales. He has a legendary work ethic. He powers through the day, refuses to stop for lunch, sometimes to the annoyance of his wife, and he just wants to get as much done on behalf of the country while he's here. So why are we here? Because it must be stressed the royals themselves don't ask to come to places such as these. They're sent by the British government. And that's because the British government want to harness their legendary power of soft diplomacy, which is building bridges and strengthening bilateral ties between Britain and other countries in a way that politicians and diplomats can't. Now, it is easy to be cynical about this, and I was, trust me, when I started this job, but I have seen firsthand how this works. And I've heard so many foreign and Commonwealth officials say they've been trying to open doors for months, if not years, to no avail. And then suddenly a member of the royal family comes along, Prince of Wales, Duke of Cambridge, whoever it might be, and things happen.
point where Jesus Christ was said to have been baptised and Charles and Camilla got to dip their hands in water from the Holy River Jordan. Unfortunately, the minibus that was meant to be taking us back to Amman seems to have gone astray, so we might be spending quite a while in the middle of nowhere. Rebecca Inglis there, there's three people in that marriage. Taking us behind the scenes, you can see the final part of her video diary on Mail Plus this weekend. And returning briefly to my panel now, and Victoria, we've just seen, we've been talking about how the Queen is slowly stepping back. And this royal tour does seem to feel like another small but significant sign of the changing of the guard. Yes, I mean, she hasn't done overseas travel for some time now, but of course now that COVID is over and the members of the royal family are starting to be out and about resuming normal duties, I think the difference in what she is doing and what they are doing is perhaps more apparent. Um, you know, nobody was going anywhere in, in COVID, so it didn't, the fact that she wasn't going anywhere perhaps didn't stand out as much. Um, but I think, you know, Charles represents her overseas now, but when it comes to the Queen, really, you know, the value that she brings as head of state is way beyond what she is capable of doing now because of the relationship that she's built up with people all over the world over many, many decades. So she's such a unique figurehead in that way. So it's not just about what, where she can go, what she can do. It's about who she is and what she's invested over many decades. Mm. Just looking at that schedule that did look quite punishing to me. I was a bit stressed hearing about what they were up to there. Prince Charles, you know, working really hard, Richard. When... How do you think he feels then when actually what we end up talking about and what dominates the press is Prince Andrew's, you know, financial situation or Meghan Markle's brand new TV show, his interview? Do you think it's frustrating or do you think he's not bothered? Um, I'm sure it is frustrating. But, you know, papers like the Daily Mail have given good coverage to this tour. We've sent Rebecca there to report on it. So I think they'll be pleased with the, the coverage it's got. But... Um, I mean, it's part and parcel, isn't it, of, of royal life that, you know, there are the old scandals. What do they say? It's the greatest show on earth. Just a few. Just a few in the last few years. I mean, Victoria, you've done many royal tours. Is it all hobnobbing with foreign dignitaries or is it occasionally getting abandoned by a minibus in the middle of the desert? I mean, it is both, you know, and the, <laughs> the hobnobbing is the work, really. You know, I, I thought mean, you were going to say the worst then. <laughs> it sounds easy, but it, it's a, for, for the royals being in the spotlight constantly, multiple engagements and, you know, in the digital age and the, this intense, you know, media coverage that we have, every tiny little thing, any little misstep would get would go around the world in seconds so they are under pressure you know they're under pressure in those situations over prolonged periods of time and yeah I mean what the benefit that they do have is that they obviously whiz from one place to the next on their plane or you know on their um, car you know traffic stopped whatever and obviously as a journalist you're trying to chase and catch up and you know going on scheduled flights and it can be uh, quite challenging mm -hmm. but yeah. Sounds quite exciting to me. <laughs> Maybe I should have rethought that career move. That's all we have time for on Palace Confidential this week. My thanks as ever to Rebecca English, Robert Hardman, Victoria Murphy and Richard Eden. And never forgetting you, our wonderful viewers. Keep checking back on Mail Plus for the latest royal news and we will see you next week. Bye-bye.